Today's reading is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba asked the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amuel, in Lodabar. So King David had brought him from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amuel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord, the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Good evening, everyone. Um, We're going to be looking at this passage that Rachel has just read for us, so do keep it open in front of you. And on the face of it, um, this is a historical passage. Um, It's about an interaction between two men, one called Mephibosheth and one called David. And yet our title for this evening, which is on the screen, is God is Gracious, So I Don't Have to Prove Myself. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. And you might be thinking, firstly, what on earth could these events that happened over 2,000 miles away in Jerusalem, over 3,000 years ago in about 1,000 BC, what could they possibly have to do with me here in Oxford in 2023? And secondly, what could they possibly tell us about God? Because God, I don't know if you noticed, he's only mentioned once in this passage. He's mentioned by David sort of in passing. And um, God doesn't seem to really speak or to act in any way. So how can this snippet of history really tell us that God is gracious so I don't have to prove myself? Or possibly you've been to church a few times before, and so you think, actually, I sort of know where this is going, and you probably do know where this is going, and that's fine. But whether we're tempted to switch off for about 20 minutes because we think this couldn't possibly be relevant to us, or because we think we know what this is about, we've heard this truth a thousand times before, and as I've been preparing this week, I've been tempted to think things like that um, as I've been going along. We need to remember these words of Paul to Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. So as we read this historical narrative tonight, God is speaking, and his words are for our goods, whether we're learning these truths for the first time or hearing them for the thousandth time. 
And if we look carefully at this passage and how it fits into the great story of God's redeeming love through the Bible, I think we'll see that this statement, God is gracious so I don't have to prove myself, is true. And I hope that as we see it played out in a small way between David and Mephibosheth, that it will help us to know and to feel this truth more deeply and more clearly. If we're going to hear God speak tonight, we're going to need his help. So let's pray as we begin. Father God, please would you speak to us this evening. Please would you use your perfect words in Scripture and my imperfect, weak words. And by your Spirit, please would you help us to see you more clearly. Please would we go away amazed by your grace and your mercy to us and loving you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to think about two things tonight. First, we're going to think about uh, David's kindness to Mephibosheth, and we're going to think about why David does that, and then we're going to think about God's kindness to us and why God does that. So first, David's kindness to Mephibosheth, and we're really jumping into the middle of 2 Samuel here. So to understand what's going on, we need to put this passage into its context in this book, and I think it's helpful to start with these two characters, King David and Mephibosheth. I would guess that we're probably more familiar with one of those characters. Put your hand up if you know anything about King David. Most of us. Put your hand up if you know anything about Mephibosheth. A couple of show-offs. Um, <laughs> David is a lot more familiar to us. He's the David of David and Goliath fame. He's the David who wrote many of the Psalms. We've heard one of those um, already this evening. But importantly to us this evening, this David is the second ever king of Israel. Um, the first king was a man called Saul, and when we first meet Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're told that Saul is as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than everyone else. So Saul is tall, he's dreamy, and he's basically a useless king. As we read through the book of 1 Samuel, we see Saul being kind of well-meaning, and he sometimes tries to do the right thing, but generally speaking, he's cowardly. He makes rash promises that he then doesn't keep or he can't keep. And most significantly of all, on more than one occasion, God tells Saul to do one thing, and Saul thinks something else will be slightly better. And so he does that, and things don't go well for him. And so eventually, enough is enough, and God says Saul will no longer be king of Israel. And he chooses David to take Saul's place. And over time, Saul grows more and more jealous of David, and Saul grows to hate David, and he grows to hate him so much that eventually he tries to kill him. And when David escapes with the help of Saul's son, Jonathan, Saul pursues him. And Saul pursues David, trying to kill him for a period of probably around about seven years. For the rest of Saul's life, David is on the run, hiding in caves, constantly being pursued by Saul and by his army, until eventually... Saul dies in a battle with the Amalekites, along with his son, Jonathan. So at this point, David finally becomes king, and some of Israel follow him, but Saul has one son left. His name is Ishbosheth. Good names in this family, Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth is supported by Saul's military, and he also sets himself up as king. And what follows is two years of brutal civil war between King David and his men, and Ishbosheth and his men, until eventually Ishbosheth is murdered by two of his own men. And finally, David is king of the whole nation. It's like Game of Thrones, isn't it? But finally, Israel have a king 
David, who has been appointed by God. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of tonight's passage, and that's where we meet Mephibosheth. It's important for us to understand this wider context because it means we can understand who Mephibosheth is, and we can understand the depth and the strength and the extravagance of David's kindness to him. So have a look at verse 1 of our passage. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? And we'll stop there for one moment because up to that point in the question, that is a perfectly reasonable question for David to be asking because what did you do when you became king? You looked around and you found any rival heirs to the throne, any heirs of the previous king, and you got rid of them. It's a common practice throughout history and all over the world, but we don't have to look very far to find some examples of this. Um, About 150 years after the events that we're looking at tonight, um, we read in 2 Kings chapter 10 how a man called Jehu has become king. The guy who was king before Jehu was a man called Ahab, and Ahab had 70 sons, 7-0, busy man. And Jehu, when he becomes king, rounds up all 70 of Ahab's sons, and he has them beheaded, and their heads are piled up in two piles at the city gates. And it wasn't just the sons. 2 Kings chapter 10 verse 11 says, So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained of the house of Ahab, as well as all his chief men, his close friends, and his priests, leaving him no survivor. 250 years after that, um, we read in 2 Kings chapter 25 about Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, coming to Jerusalem. He defeats Judah, um, and he takes the king of Judah a guy called Zedekiah, and he makes Zedekiah watch as he kills all of his sons. And then he gouges out Zedekiah's eyes and takes him off into captivity. It is brutal, horrific stuff. But at the time, people would have seen this as the sensible course of action. After all, David has already learned the hard way through a civil war with Ishbosheth that rival heirs to the throne cause problems. So David asks, is there still anyone left from the house of Saul? And everyone's thinking, yes, this makes sense. And then he says, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. So rather than seeking out Saul's heirs to kill them, David is seeking them out to show them kindness, which is shocking. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But let's get to Mephibosheth first. In verse 2, they call in one of Saul's servants, a man called Ziba. He's kind of the, the chief servant in Saul's house. And he is someone who would know the answer to David's question. So David asks him in verse 3, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul, slightly different reason this time, to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answers, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both his feet. And that's Mephibosheth. So David sends his man to bring Mephibosheth to him. Let's just take a moment to pause and to put ourselves in Mephibosheth's shoes. He's a small child when his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul are killed in battle, and he's taken off with his uncle Ishbosheth, and for the next two years, the constant background to his life is a brutal civil war against King David, until eventually his uncle is murdered by two of his own men, And at this point, we read in chapter 4 of this book that Mephibosheth's nurse picks him up and assuming that they're going to come for Mephibosheth next and kill him, which was probably a good assumption, assuming that that's what they're going to do, she picks him up and she runs, 
but she falls and she drops him and he's injured and he loses the use of both of his legs. So if you're Mephibosheth, all your life your family have been at war with King David and most of them are now dead, leaving you alone and you cannot walk, so you cannot work and the best you can hope for in life is poverty and destitution but actually even that's pretty unlikely because the man who you've been taught to hate since the day you were born, the man your family have been trying to kill since before you were born, King David, is now ruling over Israel. And so when you hear the bang on the door, Mephibosheth, King David wants to see you, you know what's going to happen. And you can't run, you can't even walk. So they have to carry you. And mile after mile, you're thinking, how can I get out of this? What can I say to King David? I can't pretend I'm not his enemy. I've been his enemy for my entire life. What can I offer him? I can't work for him. I can't fight for him. And so when finally you arrive and you're brought in before King David, all you can do is fall on your face and say, I am at your service. I'm at your service. I'm your servant. And that's what Mephibosheth does. And as he waits for David to kill him, can you imagine hearing King David say these words in verse 7? Mephibosheth, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Do you feel the strength of David's kindness towards Mephibosheth? Do you see David's mercy and his grace to Mephibosheth? Mercy is when someone isn't given the punishment that they deserve. Grace is when someone is given good things that they don't deserve. And David does both of those things here. Um, I showed mercy this week. Um, this week we had a mouse in our house, uninvited. Um, we named him Cecil, and Cecil the mouse was my enemy. Cecil came into my house without asking, that's trespass. Cecil ate my food without asking, that's theft. And Cecil defecated on my living room floor, which was disgusting. And so for his crimes, to my mind, Cecil deserved to die. I felt that it, it would have been well within my rights to get a trap and to set that trap and to kill Cecil the mouse. But I didn't do that, I showed mercy. I bought a humane trap from Amazon um, and I, I caught Cecil in the trap on Tuesday and I took him far away from my house to a nice park, Rally Park on, on Botley Hill and I released him into that nice park. So if you live in the Botley area, keep your doors closed. Um, <laughs> I did not punish Cecil for the crimes he had committed against me. I showed him mercy, but I did not show Cecil grace. I did not show him undeserved favor. I didn't give him good things that he didn't deserve. I didn't say, Cecil, from this day on, I will treat you as my own son. You will always eat at my table for the rest of your days. You will be waited on hand and foot, or foot and foot in your case, and take the living room, it's yours, for you and your family of mice to do with as you wish. I did not do that. I showed mercy. I didn't show grace. But David shows incredible mercy and grace. Obviously, that's a trivial example. There's nothing trivial about the mercy and the grace that David shows to Mephibosheth. Have a look at verse 7. In verse 7, David gives Mephibosheth significant property. He gives him all the land that had belonged to his grandfather Saul. It's enough land to support dozens and dozens of people. And we can see that in verses 9 and 10 because David gives 
Saul's servant Ziba and his whole household, his servants and his sons, he gives them their jobs back, their livelihoods back, as they work on the land that David has given to Mephibosheth. And more than that, we see that Mephibosheth is given the chance to have a family. In verse 12, we learn that he eventually has a son. His son's name is Micah. And um, we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 8, a genealogy where we can see that actually Mephibosheth had lots and lots of descendants. Instead of wiping out Saul's last remaining heir, David allows him to have a family. So Mephibosheth will literally live like a king. There's plenty here to allow him to live in luxury for the rest of his life. He's got a place to live. He's got a household staff. He's got plenty of food to eat. But Mephibosheth won't eat any of it because most strikingly of all, David says in verse 7, you will always eat at my table. It's the greatest honor that King David can bestow. By telling Mephibosheth that he will always eat at his table, David is treating Mephibosheth like his own son. We see that in verse 11. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Let's just take a moment to reflect again on Mephibosheth's situation. In the space of a few words from David, Mephibosheth has gone from what seemed like certain death to a wonderful new life. He's gone from isolation to having family. He's gone from destitution to immense wealth. He's gone from being treated as the king's enemy, facing death, to being treated as the king's son. David shows extravagant kindness to this man, Mephibosheth. And just before we move on to think about us, I want to ask this question, why does David do it? Why does David show mercy and grace to Mephibosheth? Why does he take his enemy and treat him like his son? And I think we're given two reasons in the passage. Um, But first, a reason that it definitely isn't. It definitely is not anything to do with Mephibosheth. It's not anything to do with what Mephibosheth has done or what Mephibosheth is like. And we can see that really clearly because if you look at the order of events, David has decided to show kindness before he ever meets Mephibosheth. In fact, he's decided to show kindness before he even knows that Mephibosheth exists. Which is fortunate because there is nothing Mephibosheth could have done that would have earned him David's favor. There is nothing he could have done that would have outweighed a life of enmity with David And he's not useful to David in any way. He's lame in both his feet. He can't work for David. He can't fight for David. He's not useful to David. And he recognizes this himself in verse 8. He says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? A dead dog, he calls himself. Useless, unpleasant, dead. So it's not due to anything Mephibosheth does or says, but there are two reasons, I think, for David's mercy and grace. And the first one we see in in verse one, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was Mephibosheth's father, um, and Jonathan had saved David's life from King Saul. Jonathan and David were friends, and in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we read about Jonathan and David making a covenant together, a binding agreement And David promises Jonathan that he will show kindness to him and to his family. So the first reason, I think, that David shows mercy and grace to Mephibosheth is because he has promised that that is what he will do. He's promised to show kindness to Jonathan's family, and David keeps his promise. 
And the second reason is in verse 3. David says, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? David shows mercy and grace to Mephibosheth because he's the king of Israel, and as the king of Israel, he is God's representative. And so the reason he treats uh, Mephibosheth in this way is because God, his God, is a God of mercy and grace. He's showing him God's kindness. Which brings us to our second point. We've seen David's kindness to Mephibosheth. We're going to think about God's kindness to us. But we have to be a little bit careful about how we get there because this passage is not a parable or a metaphor or an allegory. We can't just start drawing straight lines and saying, okay, David is God and I'm Mephibosheth and Zeba is, um, well, Zeba's not anyone. Zeba is Zeba. David is David. Mephibosheth is Mephibosheth. These are real historical people. These are real historical events. Um, It's not an allegory, but it is a history that has been recorded for us in God's word because it tells us something about God. It teaches us something about him. How does it do that? Well, it does that because David, at his very best, is a good king. The author of First and Second Samuel um, deliberately portrays David as a good king. Um, lots of the things that David does, including this passage that we're looking at tonight, we're meant to look and to see David as a good king. We're meant to look and see what a good king looks like. So when you read about the way David treats Mephibosheth, don't you want a king like that? Don't you want a king who shows mercy and grace? Don't you want a king who keeps his promises? Don't you want a king who reflects the kindness of God? That's the kind of king that I want. But this book is not a hagiography of David. The author shows us David's best bits to show us what a king should look like or could look like, but they also show us David's lowest points to show us that David is not that perfect king. They don't airbrush out his flaws. In fact, you only need to flick over one page in your Bibles to the next page, chapter 11, to find the low point of David's life. When he sees a woman called Bathsheba and he takes her and commits adultery with her, possibly without her consent. He then has her husband killed and he marries her himself. And I don't want that king. So as we look at David's life and passages like um, 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're given glimpses of what the perfect king could be, what the perfect king should be, but we're also shown very clearly that David is not the perfect king. However, God does promise David that one of his descendants will be the perfect king. If you flick back one page in the other direction uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to have a look at verse 12 together. God's speaking to David, and God says in verse 12 of chapter 7, um, where are we? When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David is an imperfect king, and his kingdom will fail. David will die, but one of his ancestors, God promises, will be the perfect king, whose kingdom will never fail, whose kingdom will be eternal. And so as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, we're waiting for this king that God has promised to David. We're waiting for one of David's descendants to be this perfect king whose kingdom will be eternal. He comes to be known as the Messiah, the anointed one. 
And so we look at David's son who rules after him, and it's not him. He's a good king. He's wise, but he's got tons of wives, and he follows other gods. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. And as we look at the kings that follow, we see them getting worse, not better. None of these kings are the Messiah. And so we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting for about a thousand years until David's great times 25 grandson, Jesus of Nazareth, is born. And the Bible is very clear that he is the Messiah. He is this perfect king in the line of David who will rule forever, whose kingdom will never fail. And so when we look at David and when we look at how David treats Mephibosheth and see how a good king acts, we're really just getting a glimpse a glimpse of the real thing, David's grace and mercy to Mephibosheth are significant and dramatic, but they are only a shadow, a glimmer of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who were his enemies. And his enemy, the one to whom he shows unfathomable grace and mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ, his enemy is me, and it's you. And I don't think that that's how we really think of ourselves, is it? Um, enemies of God, we might say, I don't even really know if God exists. Some of you might say, you might say, at worst, I'd say I'm indifferent to God. Maybe I'm neutral. But the Bible says we're not neutral because to live in God's kingdom as those created by him, as though those whom he has given all sorts of good things, to live in his kingdom and ignore him and pretend he doesn't exist is not a neutral thing to do. My parents were very, very good parents. They're still very good parents. They loved me. They gave me all sorts of good things. If I decided just to ignore them, never to speak to them again, never to pick up the phone, to pretend they didn't exist, that would not be a neutral thing to do. To live in God's kingdom and ignore him is an act of rebellion. And by nature, we are all rebels in God's kingdom. Rebellion against God's rule comes so naturally to me that even when I try and live with him as my king, I so quickly slip back into living for myself and trying to set up my own little kingdom The Bible's clear that by nature, I'm an enemy of God, but I don't have to remain God's enemy because how does God treat his enemies? Well, we've seen a glimpse of it in King David. He is a God who loves to show grace and mercy to his enemies. Listen to these words from Romans chapter five, verse eight. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 10, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. By nature, we are enemies of God, but God loves to show grace and mercy to his enemies. David shows Mephibosheth mercy by not punishing him. God shows us mercy by taking the punishment instead of us as the Lord Jesus died on the cross. David offers Mephibosheth an inheritance of land and servants. God offers us an imperishable, eternal inheritance in heaven. David treats Mephibosheth as his own son. Hear these words from the Lord Jesus, uh, about the Lord Jesus from John chapter 1. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God gives all who believe in the name of Jesus the right to become his children. So when we read 2 Samuel chapter 9 and we see David's mercy and grace and we want a king like that, well, Jesus is the king who is perfectly like that, who is always like that, who is always merciful, always gracious. 
And so just before we finish and sing about this amazing grace of the Lord Jesus, I want us to ask the same question about him that we asked about David. We asked, why does David do it? Why does he treat his enemy as his own son? Why does God treat us as his own children? Why does he uh, show us this grace and mercy? And we could answer that question in all sorts of different ways. There are lots of ways that the Bible answers that question. But one way of answering it is to say that actually, at his best, in as much as he is a good king, David shows us what God is like. And actually, the two reasons that David showed kindness to Mephibosheth are two reasons that God shows kindness to us. Those two reasons were uh, because he's promised to do so and because that's what God is like. God doesn't show us kindness because of anything that we do, just like it wasn't because of anything that Mephibosheth did. Mephibosheth knew that there was nothing that he could do to earn David's favor. No good deeds would outweigh his position as David's enemy, And he came before David and fell on his face as a dead dog. And a Christian is someone who knows that they are like a dead dog before God. Because there's nothing that we can do to earn his grace. We're dead in our sin. There's nothing that we can do to deserve to be called his children. The Christian knows that they are spiritually lame, that they are as good as dead in their sins, but they fall on their faces before God knowing there's nothing they can offer and accepting his undeserved mercy and grace, accepting his love, knowing it hasn't been earned. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself, which is really good news because I cannot prove myself. So why does God do it? Those two reasons, the same as the reasons for David's kindness, because he's promised to do it and because that's what God is like. David promised to show kindness to Jonathan's family and David kept his promise. God has promised to show mercy and grace and kindness to us. The Bible is full of promises from the Lord God to us that that is how he will treat us. Think back to those words from John chapter 1. Those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God promises that if you believe in the name of Jesus, you will be his child. Think of the promise of the Lord Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus promises that if we come to him, he will not turn us away. He will give us rest. God will show us uh, kindness, mercy, grace, because he has promised that that is what he will do. And God always keeps his promises. David sometimes kept his promises. God always keeps his promises. And he said that he'll do it. And then the second one was that David showed kindness to Mephibosheth because he was reflecting the character of God. And of course, God always acts in line with his character. And God, we see in the Bible, is a God of mercy and grace. He loves to show mercy to sinners like us. There's nothing we can do, but God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you because you're a God of mercy and grace. We praise you for your kindness to people like us. We know that by ourselves, we were as good as dead. We could offer you nothing. Thank you that we can call you our Father. Thank you that we do not need to prove ourselves to you, and please forgive us for the times when we try to do so. And we pray that these truths that we've been looking at tonight of your immeasurable mercy and grace to people like us. We pray that those truths would sink deep into our hearts and that they would change us. 
Thank you for your amazing grace to us in the Lord Jesus. It's it's in his name that we pray. Amen.